chain of events, cause and effect. We analyze what went right and what went wrong as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chigi, and this is Causality. Causality is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page, and for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. Whether we realize it or not, as technology develops, we all sort of seek to reduce and improve overall safety. You know, when because when it's something new like a like a car or a tram or a train's come out, you know, there's an initial excitement. There's a, sort of an acceptance. This new technology is just inherently safe until you put it to the test on mass. Admittedly, we've gotten better as a society in appreciating risks before we reach them. But ultimately, things like seatbelts were an afterthought, so were airbags. And uh, people hanging off the outside of trains is still commonplace in some countries, rather than staying inside and keeping your hands and arms inside the vehicle. In my line of work, particularly also in the mining industry, these risks are sort of considered to be much greater than in a public space by percentage, but not, not actually in total, solely due to risk of exposure. There's a lot less people overall working in mining oil and gas and, and engineering construction than there are in the general populace. So obviously the numbers are going to be slanted towards the total values will be slanted towards the public because their risk of exposure to uh, incidents is much greater. But if you look at the total ratio as a percentage, uh, it's rather interesting. So in the USA, uh, in the early 2000s, the average fatality rate on a mine site was 0.033%. That's one thirtieth of a percent. And that's about half of those were related to vehicle accidents. Now, in the same period in the States, there were 42,836 fatalities. Now, uh, obviously... The total population at the time was 293 million people. So that works out to about 0.014% or 168th of a percent uh, were killed. Now, call it uh, roughly twice if you'd like. There's a lot of simplifications in those ratios. There's lots of uh, assumptions. But let's just say that it's uh, twice as dangerous, roughly, working in a mining environment uh, for, ve- for vehicular accidents in particular uh, than it is in the general populace. Now, it's interesting to note, there's a link in the show notes to a Wikipedia article about fatalities in the USA. They've actually been dropping significantly in the last decade, and it's most likely due to vehicle safety improvements, uh, despite the increasing population and also increasing distance travelled. So have a look at that if you're interested. It certainly is a downward trend, which is really good to see. But anyway, that said, there's uh, many methods you can control uh, safety risks. And uh, companies use different ones for different purposes. So, for example, we'll have general purpose, uh, uh, general PPE, um, you know, personal protective equipment. And uh, that includes things like gloves, uh, safety helmets, safety glasses, long sleeve shirts, trousers, and lots more. But beyond PPE, using vehicles for access to sites presents a big risk because a vehicle is, in, in, in essence, is a movable uh, weapon that you can crash into things and people and injure other people and things or yourself. And many injuries involved in in this line of work come from car accidents either on the site itself or between sites. And, you know, that's across the board. It doesn't matter if it's mining, oil and gas, quarries, even quarries. Now, a lot of these locations, because of the nature of the business, they are either remote or isolated or 
they just they require an off-road vehicle to access them because it's not economical usually to seal all of the roads with bitumen or concrete because that gets very expensive. In some cases, uh, particularly in the mining industry, heavy mining, it's not practical to actually seal a road. These haul trucks are huge, you know, many, many, many tons, enormous vehicles. And haul trucks on haul roads are so big and heavy, they just they would destroy any attempt to seal the road that they're driving on. I mean, you could probably build a road that could hold them and last for 20 years, but it would cost you so much money, you just wouldn't bother opening the mine in the first place. So if we accept that we're going to... So if we've we've accepted that if we're going to set one tire tread of a vehicle on a mine site or similar off-road location as part of a job, then we have to specify a minimum class of vehicle to access those sites. Because if there is a risk, any risk, then we have to account for that by ensuring we have an appropriate vehicle for the job. So what do companies do? The obvious thing, of course, that they do is they mandate and specify that everyone shall drive a four-wheel drive. Four-wheel drives have a high ground clearance, meaning they can clear objects in in their paths. They're generally stronger, tougher, more durable, importantly, they're able to drive all four wheels at once if they're required to, and that will significantly provide significantly more traction in uh, difficult driving conditions when they're off-road. Now, the number of people that drive larger vehicles like pickup trucks, SUVs, four-wheel drives outside of their jobs in the mining industry is increasing every single year. There's a bunch of theories as to why that is. A lot of people say it's simply because of the higher driving position. Some people like to tow things around, you know, like caravans and boats and Jet skis, you know, I like jet skis, they look like fun. I'll have to get around to riding one someday. But anyway, there's also larger boot space, uh, trunk space, I should say, uh, for shopping excursions, let's say, you know, as more people shop at places like Costco and shopping in bulk requires more storage in the vehicle for their, for their goods and services. Well, I suppose goods primarily. And many people that drive on mine sites, uh, even though they may drive a four-wheel drive, a pickup truck or an SUV, Uh, in the quote-unquote real world outside of work, they haven't actually been trained how to drive larger vehicles because they do handle very differently from a sports car or a sedan because, of course, four-wheel drives are much heavier and they handle a lot more like a tank than they do a sedan. Now, some companies have actually recognized that this is an issue, Um, an example being the one that I currently work for, and they provide professional four-wheel drive training before before you're allowed to actually drive on their sites in either a light vehicle or a heavy vehicle. One of the biggest risks for fatalities in four-wheel drives is just the one we're going to focus on today, and that's rollovers. Now, the reason, I guess it may not be immediately obvious, but it's because whilst the proportion of accidents that may have a rollover is relatively small, the proportion significantly increases when you're off-road, maybe that's obvious, and uh, when there is a rollover as a class of accidents, rollovers have the second highest injury or fatality rate of any class of accident on average, uh, the highest uh, being a full frontal collision, and I think that makes intuitive sense. In the US, last decade, there are an average of 10,000 fatalities due to rollover accidents. So I think this, I think it's cause to consider rollovers specifically as a, well, call it a failure mode if you like, accident class. Now, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, 
that's NHTSA, their FARS FARS website has statistics if you really want to dig through them. And there's a link in the show notes if you're interested. It really is quite a lot of information. And if you want to have a look, they have data from 1994 to 2013. It's under FARS data, vehicles, passenger cars. Have a dig through there and have a look around. There's two broad categories of rollover, and each is based on what triggers the rollover itself. So it's simply tripped or untripped. Now, tripped is when an object external to the vehicle provides a momentary obstruction to the tyre or lower part of the car body, and that injects a turning moment into the motion of the vehicle body, causing the rollover. An untripped rollover is when either the steering, friction, or speed alone trigger the rollover by themselves. Every now and then when we have this discussion, there's two key terms that are used. There's something called stability factor and center of gravity. So we need to get our heads around that before we go on any further. Center of gravity is also more accurately referred to as the center of mass. The Wikinition, if you want to call it a Wikinition, states that the center of mass is the unique point at the center of a distribution of mass in space that has the property that the weighted position vectors relative to this point sum to zero. Uh, Yeah, okay. So the best way to think about center of gravity is to think about a clear, empty box, like a cube, without with you know one side missing, so you can put things like small balls in it. Let's say we load a dozen of steel balls inside this clear, empty box. Now, if you were to stick all the balls to the sides with glue, let's say, then you stack them as high as you can, and then there's a sort of a gap in the middle. But if you stack them as high as you can, evenly around the edges. Now, if you try and push that box over, it'll be relatively easy because a lot of the weight is stacked higher. But if you stick all the balls to the bottom of the box only and none on the sides, as low as you can pack them together, and then you try and push the box over in the same way, it'll be significantly harder. So we calculate the center of gravity by adding together all the individual masses within the movable object, and we multiply those by their distances to a pivot point. Hence, the same amount of mass further distance away from the ground will increase the impact it has to the center of gravity and raises the average center of gravity higher. So the idea is when we have a vehicle, we want to make sure that all of the weight or the vast majority of the weight is as close to the ground as possible because the lower it is, the lower the center of gravity and the more stable the vehicle is going to be. Now, Keep in mind that for a vehicle, the pivot point in a rollover is predominantly the outside edge of the tyres on whichever side is the one that trips, presumably. The stability factor is defined as one-half the average front and rear track width divided by the total vehicle centre of gravity height. Now, that's important because that weights the centre of gravity against the overall width or track of the vehicle. Hence, If you want to improve the stability of your vehicle, make the wheels wider apart and keep the major heavy components of the vehicle as close to the ground as possible. While we're talking about center of gravity, though, as a side note, the Tesla Model S, which is very popular at the moment, has a center of gravity of approximately 18 inches. That's 475 millimeters from the road surface. And that's one of the lowest in the world because the majority of its mass 
the electric motors and the huge battery pack that it uses is essentially at wheel level. Now, normally, when you have an engine in a vehicle, it's mounted higher than the wheel level, and that contributes to a higher center of gravity, particularly in the front of the car. And that's what you see in most other conventional vehicles. Now, there's an excellent paper by Richardson, Reichnitzer, and Grasbita called A Methodology Methodology for Estimating Vehicle Rollover Propensity that Combines Stability Factor and Handling Metrics. One of the many safety tests that the governments uh, require vehicles to be subjected to is a so-called tilt test. And it's performed when a vehicle's both laden, unladen with cargo and or passengers. And the reason that they do these tests is because calculating center of gravity without actually testing it in the real world is really difficult. It's just far easier to test it. So one of the things that I mentioned that uh, that particular paper, it talks about stability factor and tilt testing and the the different factors that go into improving the overall safety of a vehicle. And in mining situations in particular, but not, not exclusively mining, but, but in this particular case, we'll look at that. I want to consider a six-point ROPS, which is, stands for a Rollover Protection System, ROPS. Now, ROPS cages, uh, in, this, in, in our examples, I'm going to look at it supplied by a company. Now, this is not a reflection on them as a company at all. This is just a typical example of what's available as an aftermarket ROPS in the industry. Now, these particular ROPs weigh about 74 kilograms. That's 175 pounds. And if you add them to a vehicle that's commonplace here, like a Mitsubishi Pajero, for example, now that has a curb weight of 2,255 kilograms. So that 74 kilo ROPs adds about 3.5%. Now, that doesn't sound like too much, but it's more the height that you're adding that weight. It's all... Well, the majority of the mass exists from and above the window line, and that places the majority of the masses above the torso heights of the passengers of the vehicle, just as a, just for a comparative, because you may say an occupant might weigh 74 kilograms uh, or more in you know, Western culture. Yeah. This uh, ov- has the obvious impact that it's going to increase the center of gravity, and that's generally going to make the car less stable. Now... A few other things to consider about adding a ROPS because, yeah, the motivation is we want to protect our passengers. They're going to have to drive a four-wheel drive on these mine sites. So what are we going to do? We're going to put in a ROPS, aren't we? But they wanted to make sure that they were as minimally modified, perhaps I should say. When they first introduced the roll cages, they're predominantly interior roll cages. But that presented a whole new problem. Because people in more frequent minor accidents were then banging their heads on the interior roll cages and getting minor injuries from those. So, to combat this new problem, they then added, uh, aftermarket uh, fitters then added rubber or soft plastic impact protection around the bars, and that would prevent physical injury in minor accidents. This then created another problem, which was that these things are actually... These, these uh, bits of rubber and soft plastic impact protection for the roll cage tubing, they are actually quite thick. And while well, they need to be to absorb the impact of your head or any other part of your body hitting them. And what does that do? Well, that, that, that makes them bigger, thicker, heavier. And that then started to reduce visibility. So the bars were now bigger and thicker 
And these, although this, the, the additional, you know, rubber or padding and plastic uh, protection was not that much heavier. It was still a little bit heavier. And visibility was worse in some of these vehicles as a result. So now some companies, some mining companies, and they're insisting on external roll cages. So external roll cages seem a bit odd, but uh, typically they're fitted to a utility vehicle or a pickup truck style of four-wheel drive, whereby you bolt it onto the, the tray bed and the back of the cab chassis, and it protrudes over the top. There's some links in the show notes to give you an idea of what, what they look like. But the perhaps obvious downside to an external roll cage in the context of this discussion is that those external roll cages put their center of mass even higher because they have to be above the roof line, and the vast majority of their mass is higher again than an internally mounted roll cage. So what does this all mean? What does it all add up to? Because we are coming to a point here, and that is that in early 2013, BHP, which is a large mining company, announced that all light vehicles on their mine sites in Australia, and then since then, subsequent years, the world must have a five-star ANCAP safety rating, and they are prohibited from the fitment, this is the important part, of aftermarket rollover protection systems. Now, not surprisingly, a move like this was sort of made the aftermarket companies in Australia a little bit angry. I mean, there's a shock, right? Eating to their business. Can't have that. So, BHP didn't just make this decision on a whim. They cited a series of tests performed by Crash Lab in Sydney, where they took four identical model vehicles and crash tested them, three of them with a ROPS and one without. Now, they found that those fitted with a ROPS were more likely to roll and end up on their roof. So, in, you know, in their tests, uh, the non-ROPS vehicle would roll, but it just wouldn't end up on its roof. So, the additional mass from the ROPS was causing it to continue its roll onto its roof, which is, if you think about it, just the thing it was trying to protect its occupants from. So, the problem that BHP found, and in fact, a lot of Uh, mining companies have found is that when you fit a ROPS to a vehicle, a complete reassessment of every aspect of that vehicle's safety features is not required. So, for example, does the ROPS interfere with visibility? Does it interfere with the airbags, particularly the side curtain airbags that are now commonplace in vehicles? Does it interfere with other... Does it create... Uh, the circumstances for additional minor injuries, as I discussed before, therefore requiring padding on the internal roll cages. You know, and of course, does it increase the probability overall of an added, of the accident that it's trying to protect the occupants from? Now, there have been a lot of studies back and forth on this. In 2010, a Monash University study found that electronic stability control was highly effective in reducing the risk and occurrence of rollovers by as much as 82%. There's a link in the show notes. It's an interesting read if you're interested to have a look. The other thing, of course, perhaps obviously, is better driver training reduces the risk. Of course, if you'd like to go down the more official route, which is to look at ANCAP's position, their official position, ANCAP, and this is directly quoting from their website, ANCAP does not test vehicles with rollover protection systems fitted, but 
Research tests have shown that ROPS can increase the propensity for a vehicle to roll by raising the centre of gravity. ROPS can also prevent the deployment of airbags, greatly increasing the risk of serious head injuries, and it may not eliminate roof crushes in vehicle rollovers. They go on to say, internal ROPS may also prevent rearward displacement of the driver's seat in a strike from the rear. Modern seats are designed to respond in a controlled manner to reduce the risk of whiplash injury. This can be adversely affected by an internal ROPS. There may also be a risk of head injury from contact with the ROPS during a crash. This applies to rear seat occupants as well as the driver and the front passenger. Now, all that said, I said there were a lot of reports. Here's another one. A report entitled Operator Rollover Protections on Small Vehicles by the Silso Research Institute in the UK in 2006. It was targeting small mass vehicles, not four-wheel drives, but still 300 to 600 kilo operating mass, and it found that an appropriately engineered conventional ROP solutions would therefore appear to be suitable for application to smaller vehicles where a rollover risk is deemed to exist. And of course, there's a link in the show notes if you're interested in that one too. Ultimately, there is evidence both ways. But I find the arguments fascinating because when it comes to improving safety in vehicles and personnel, but particularly vehicles, I guess, in this case, We have to balance those safety improvements with the impact and the consequences of adding those safety improvements and the mechanisms we use are just as important because if they then impinge on other aspects of personal safety or create the conditions to jeopardize personal safety in a different way, then we really need to reassess what we're doing. And it's not just that technology evolves and improves. The automotive industry has been improving support on A A pillars and B pillars and support and essentially creating the conditions in vehicles for far more uh, structural integrity and much stronger vehicles. It's not, it's a moving target, I guess is what I'm saying. Because as vehicles evolve and car manufacturers evolve and add more technologies like airbags as well as another example, the old way of thinking that we have to fit aftermarket systems to protect occupants may no longer be valid for certain vehicle models. The higher the safety rating of the vehicle, electronic stability control and better driver training may in fact reduce the total quantity of rollovers in the first place, hence not requiring a rollover protection system. And if there are rollovers, perhaps the more improved safety vehicles will be in a position to protect their occupants without a ROPS. So what was once necessary in older, perhaps less well-designed vehicles may no longer be required. If you're enjoying Causality and want to support the show, you can, like one of our backers, Chris Stone. He and many others are patrons of the show via Patreon, and you can find it at patreon.com slash johnchidgey, all one word. So if you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, it's very much appreciated. This was Causality. I'm John Chidgey. Thanks for listening. Thank you.